Parashat Tazria, um, generally speaking, we focus on a parasha when we talk about, uh, when I mentioned that I'm going to be discussing an issue, a topic within that parasha. And although the topic I'm going to be discussing today is in the parasha and I'm going to focus on the parasha, it's actually a much broader topic. Um, and it's a topic of something which has um, gone into disuse in the Jewish faith. Um, that means it's not extinct entirely, but it's dormant. You know the difference between extinct and dormant. You have a volcano which erupts and has never erupted again, even for thousands of years, but has the potential to erupt. It's called a dormant volcano, as opposed to an extinct volcano, which will never erupt again. It's just, it's a, it's a relic, it's a historic relic or whatever the correct terminology is. Um, the issue of Tum'ah and Tahara in Judaism, um, and I'm not going to translate those words, although we're going to discuss various translations uh, during the course of this year. At the moment, let's just call it Tum'ah and Tahara. Um, Tum'ah and Tahara are dominant features of Jewish life, both in the Torah itself in Tanakh, and later on um, in, um, in, in the Talmud, there's enormous discussions about it, entire tractates, uh, totally devoted to the concept of Tum'ah and Tahara. Um, so essentially what I'd like to do today is through the um, prism of Parshat Tazria, and by implication Matsura, as you'll see, um, I want to talk about Tum'a and Tahara. Let's try and come up with a definition first of what they are. And once we've done that, let's try and understand or at least get some basic understanding as to what they mean and why they are so central. Tum'a and Tahara are so central to the Jewish faith. Um, even though they are now dormant. So for all intents and purposes, the laws regarding Tum'ah and Tahara are no longer relevant to even the most faithful Jew. Um, there are only two aspects of Tum'ah and Tahara which still exist um, in Jewish life. One of them is a Kohen uh, who cannot um, expose himself to a corpse, except in very limited circumstances, can't go into a cemetery. Uh, so that is one aspect of Tum'ah which exists even today. And the other aspect of Tum'ah and Tahara which exists today is a menstrual woman who cannot engage in sexual relations with, with her husband. A husband cannot engage in sexual relations with her. It works both ways. During the course of her of her menstrual cycle when she is uh, when she is in that condition. So those are the only two aspects of Tum'ah and Tahara which continue to exist and remain alive today in the Jewish faith. All other aspects of Tum'ah and Tahara do not exist. Now there is one, um, I'm, I'm going to say this advisedly, um, particularly because, you know, I, I have taken a rather controversial position on this. 
Um, there is one other aspect of Tum'an Tahara which continues to prevail. Um, it's a controversial one, uh, and people have therefore taken controversial stances on it, and that is whether or not uh, anyone alive today, any Jew or I guess Gentile alive today, can go up onto Temple Mount. Uh, because it is the holiest place of Judaism, and people who were Tamei, um, who could be described as Tamei, who were in that condition, could not go up onto Temple Mount um, when it was functioning. Um, if they were Tamei, they were, were not given access to that place. I'm, I'm guessing they, it was a self-imposed restriction because there's no external way of telling if somebody is Tamei or not. Um, Therefore, today, because that place had that status at the time that it was functioning, today as well, people don't go up onto Temple Mount if they are Tamei, and we assume that every single person on the planet is Tamei uh, for reasons that will become evident during the course of this Shi'ur. The reason it's controversial is because there is a dispute among the rabbis as to whether the status of Temple Mount remains the same as when it was fully functioning. Uh, and that's number one. And number two, whether some parts of Temple Mount are not included in that restriction, particularly this, um, the southern area, um, uh, as you may or you may not know, uh, King Herod extended the site of Temple Mount um, quite considerably by building a support structure underneath, you know, it, it, uh, um, uh, incredible feat of engineering, in fact, an ancient feat of engineering, extended the temple plaza so that it was a, uh, um, it extended over a much larger area. And there's some parts of that area which are not considered um, temple mount in biblical terms. They just happen to be a place which... Uh, you know, the area continues into, and whether or not those areas are accessible to people who are Tamei is, uh, is not a question of dispute. It's well known that they could, they could go there, and people did, even in temple times. So where those areas are exactly have become the cause of um, uh, a dispute, and I have actually been onto the southern area of Temple Mount, uh, you know, I did go to the mikveh before, but that is not a sufficient way of cleansing yourself um, so that you should be able to go onto Temple Mount proper. Notwithstanding that, this is, this is really um, a distraction from the main point of the shi'ur, which is that the vast majority of the laws regarding tum'ah and tahara do not apply to Jews, even the most faithful Jews today, as everybody will admit. Um, in which case, uh, we have limited understanding and sensitivity to this topic, and I'd like to unwrap it a little bit, unpack it, so that we have some more understanding. I don't think that we'll be able to get, we will really get to the core of the subject, um, but at least let us try and talk about it. So I'm going to begin by discussing something which um, we are very familiar with. Um, I think that, you know, we've become used to the ubiquitous requirement to wash your hands. Everybody knows you need to wash your hands, right? Um, today, if you walk into 
the average hospital or nursing home or you know children's facility anything like that they have these little um, bottles you know which you dispense alcohol rub onto your hands so that you can cleanse your hands why do we do that because we're familiar now in the last 100 150 years with the concept of germs germs which are microbes you cannot see they're not uh, they're not apparent to the naked eye and yet um, they are there on your hands your hands which touch all kinds of things and those germs particularly if you're sick or if you've come into contact with a sick person um, can cause other people to become sick if they pick them up off you um, therefore if you wash your hands with alcohol rub or better still soap and water right if you properly wash your hands then if you touch someone your hands will be uh, clean there won't be any of these uh, microbes on your hand which could cause sickness now why didn't they know about this 150 years ago in fact you know if you if you read um, if you read if you read some of the documents about what was going on with doctors and physicians you know surgeons 150 years ago or more um, it becomes very clear that the probably the greatest greatest agents of sickness uh, even up to modern times were doctors because they were the ones who came into contact with sick people and they went from one sick person to another and they would cause people to become sick even in their efforts to cure people simply by coming into contact with others and not taking the precautions which are necessary in order to prevent sickness they were causing other people to become sick they were agents of sickness so I, I mean I don't want to blame them for all the tuberculosis deaths um, that occurred over thousands of years but if a doctor was treating somebody who was suffering from tuberculosis also known as consumption 200 years ago and he went from one patient to another to another it is an incredibly infectious disease and there was no antibiotics and if the doctor was going from one patient to another they would they would carry this disease with them and the many patients would there, therefore catch um, this disease even if they didn't have it before the doctor came now some people have immunity some people I guess are you know are able to beat it themselves or whatever it is I'm sure that many doctors caught tuberculosis and died as well the point is that these microbes were not evident to them they couldn't see them they didn't know that they existed they just knew that people became sick they thought they breathed it in there I'm not sure what they thought I don't know whether they understood how these sickness um, sicknesses emerged um, but these sicknesses were being spread because of microbes we all understand that now we all understand that if we eat some food and that food is you know has got salmonella in it or some other um, terrible bug that you could die and the food could taste great by the way it's nothing to do with the flavor of the food it could smell and taste great and it could kill you because of salmonella or you could become very sick from it or, or, or some other uh, terrible sick, uh, sickness dysentery you know I don't have to go into it more people die of diarrhea every year than of car accidents right I mean that's just a proven fact why because because they they live in non-hygienic conditions we understand the importance and the primacy of hygiene when we operate in society if we want to keep the health of society secure so we understand physical health 
Do we understand the concept of spiritual health? No, because it's not scientifically testable. But we have had this concept thrust upon us by God in the Torah, that there is a concept of spiritual health, and there is somebody who is spiritually unhealthy, for whatever reason, and we're going to go into some of those reasons today, that is known as Tum'ah, the person is called Tamei. He is a Tamei or she is a Tamei person. Then you've got Tahara, you've got purity. What is purity? Um, you know, I've translated that word now as purity. I, it's not purity in the terms that they're sweet and pure and beautiful. It means they've not been uh, infected or they don't find themselves infected by spiritual microbes. And if you are infected by spiritual microbes, you can't take an antibiotic, but there is a process to take yourself from a status of Tamei to a status of Tahar. And that process is described by the Torah and by the Talmud. So we know what that process is. Do we understand it? Not really. As you're going to see, we're going to begin, um, we're going to begin with a Kuzari in a moment. The Kuzari makes it very clear that he is about to float a suggestion, make a suggestion as to what Tamei actually is, but actually he says, even that, you know, forgive me for even trying to make this suggestion, I'm just trying to make sense of something that we don't really understand. So we don't understand why, and I've discussed this in other shiurim, particularly in the shiur I gave a couple of years ago about para'aduma, about the red heifer, which is used, or the ashes are used, to cleanse a, a, a human being of contamination by coming into proximity with a dead person, with a corpse. Um, you can listen to that shear online. But the point is, we don't really understand the concepts of Tameh and Tahor. We just know what they are, how you know, someone who is Tameh can be taken from that status to Tahor, and uh, you know, uh, the, we can speculate as to what's behind it but we have no proof, um, we just know it exists. And we have to also understand why this uh, mitzvah or this aspect of Judaism has become dormant in our contemporary times. Okay, I just want to add one further thing, um, which is going to come up in the shiur, but there is a third status which I've not mentioned. So there is tamay, tum'ah, which is, um, as it were, some type of contamination which prevents you from being tahor. Then there's tahor, when you're not contaminated, whatever that contamination may mean in practical terms. And then there's a third um, status, kadosh, sanctified. Now it is very clear, and again, this will come up, it is very clear that in order to be kadosh, you must be tahor. But you don't have to be Kadosh to be Tahor. If you are Tameh, you cannot be Kadosh. But if you are uh, Tahor, you can be Kadosh. Let us look at the Kuzari, which is the first, um, the first aspect. In fact, before I do that, let me just talk about the the. Two aspects of Tameh and Tahor, which come up in Tazriya and Mitzorah. Um, in Parshat Tazriya, we begin 
with a birthing mother. Daber b'nei Yisrael lemor, isha ki tazria, v'yolda zachar, v'tama'a shivat yamim. Speak to the Jewish nation. Tell them that a woman who gives birth to a male child, to a male baby, she is tamei for seven days, kimei nidat dvota titma. So there is, um, there is a contamination period of seven days, and during the, and, and the same way as during the days of her separation. So there is, we know that when a woman is a nida, she goes through her menstrual cycle. At that moment, she becomes also tamay. Now, the word tamay is generally translated in two ways into English. So if you look at a standard translation of the Torah, you'll find one of two translations. Either the word impure, occasionally ritually impure, or the word unclean, or occasionally ritually unclean. The implication of both those words is very negative. Even the word that I've been using till now, contamination, and by comparing it to microbes, etc., sounds very negative. Because our association with anything like that is dirty. Unclean is dirty. Impure is dirty. You don't drink water that isn't pure. Why? Because it's, it's dirty, right? Unclean means dirty. So even if you add the descriptive word ritual or ritually, impure or ritually unclean before the word, it doesn't really help because the focus in your mind is not the word ritual, it's the word unclean or impure. And I think that it gives off the wrong vibe. It's, there's no good translation for the word tamay or tum'a into English. It's probably best to leave it untranslated. But, you know, not translating a word usually creates more questions than answers, which is why people feel compelled to translate it. Um, in the art scroll, it's tra translated as contaminated, which is the word that I used earlier. In any event, so the early part of Tazria talks about the status of Tamei that is imposed upon a woman who has given birth. There are other aspects to Tamei which are covered at the end of these two parashiyot, which are people who suffer from what should be best described as emissions, things that come out of their body, involuntary emissions. So one of them is a nida, a woman goes through a menstrual cycle and, you know, it's not a voluntary act. She doesn't press a button or take a drink and something happens. Every month or whatever the period of time is, she will go through this menstrual cycle. Okay, an involuntary emission. Similarly, men, this is usually due to sickness, um, can have involuntary emissions also, um, um, which are things that, something that they can't control. Okay, that also results in a tummy status. They become tum'a. But the dominant part 
of the Parshiot of Tazriya Matsura um, talk about something called Tzara'at. Again, something which we've discussed at great length um, in Shiurim that I've given. Last year's Shiur is online, but I just want to give a brief uh, backdrop to what Tzara'at is. We know in the Talmud that seven potential reasons for Tzara'at are given. Um, I'm not going to go through them all. The most famous one is the one that's brought by Rashi on the Parsha. Um, if somebody uh, speaks evil of someone else, they engage in slander, they will be afflicted by tzara'at, which can come in three different forms. Either the body, some aspect of the body, or clothing can be infected or affected by tzara'at, or the home, the walls of the home, um, the residence can be affected, infected by tzara'at. What is tzara'at? It's some type of patch, white patch, which affects um, what, those three things. It could either affect your skin, yeah. or it can, yeah, it can affect your skin, or it can infect, affect your clothes, or it can affect your home. It's usually translated as leprosy, and people who are affected by tzara'at are generally referred to as lepers. It's wrong. And that we discussed last year in the Shear. That's the wrong translation. It's got nothing whatsoever to do with Hansen's disease. It's not leprosy. It's something else completely. It's some type of physical um, manifestation of a spiritual problem. And that sends you into a status of tame. You become tame as a result of tsarat once that has been diagnosed by, uh, by a Kohen. Um, and there are rules as to how that works. There's a tractate in the Talmud called Nega'im, which describes the different ways of diagnosing this particular malady. And tzara'at can affect you, your clothes, or your home. It's not something that exists. It doesn't prevail today. So we don't have anybody who's affected by it today. And we certainly don't have anyone who knows how to diagnose it today. But there it is. It exists. It takes up and dominates two portions of the Torah. So a large portion of text in the Torah is taken up by this concept of whatever it is that has caused it, a malady known as Tzara'at. And what happens is there's a quarantine period, and at the end of that, if things have improved, whatever, the person who is affected by it has to bring a carbon, a very specific type of carbon, with two birds and some grass and also some cedar wood and different things happen to the bird as we're going to see um, in a long piece that I have in this week's share. So what is this status of Tzara'at? What is this status of Tum'ah, Tameh? Why are these particular things um, brought as the initial ideas to convey the concept of Tum'ah? And of course, we have the most famous um, side of Tum'ah, um, the, the fact that if someone comes into contact with a corpse, either of a human being, that's the most extreme version, or of a dead animal, um, or of uh, various other creepy crawlies, which you can come into contact with, which also cause a status of Tameh, why that should affect you. And by the way, if you come into contact with a dead animal, but you killed that dead animal in the course of um, providing food, 
that animal is not considered tame. So that's also interesting. If an animal, if a cow dies on the street and you touch it, it is tame. You, are, you become tame. But if you kill an, a cow um, in the ritual way, in an abattoir, in a slaughterhouse, and it's to provide meat for people, that cow is not considered tame. So that's interesting. How can it be that a dead cow is and isn't tame? Let's begin with the kuzari. So the kuzari is source number one on your source sheet. I'm going to read the English. I've, I've prepared an abridged translation. Um, uh, those of you who are listening online can, can, if they want to see the full version of this, they can print out the source sheet, which is linked um, in this article. Um, so the Kuzari was rabbi, uh, a rabbi who was having, as it were, this is actually a fictitious account of a rabbi who was having a discussion with a Khazar king about which religion was the most appropriate religion to adopt as the faith, the religious faith of the country which he led. And he'd invited, in this version, in the Kuzari's version, he'd invited a rabbi, a priest, and an imam to discuss those three major religions. And in the end, he chose Judaism. And this, the Kuzari, is as it were, a, an account of the discussion between the rabbi and the king. Um, and the rabbi is convincing the king that Judaism is the only genuine faith and the other ones should not be adopted by the country as its national religion. So in, this is in part two of the Kuzari um, um, section 60. As I have told you, this is the rabbi speaking, one can never compare human intelligence to the divine and should not waste time trying to work out the reasons behind important aspects of our faith. In other words, to a certain degree, every aspect of faith is blind faith. Why do we wear tzitzit? I could give you reasons why we wear tzitzit, or why we observe Shabbat, or why we keep kosher. I can give you some very valid and very compelling reasons, but in the end, don't try and calculate the reasons we really need to act in blind faith. God wants us to do those things. Nonetheless, he continues, if you will excuse me, I am taking the liberty of stating, though not with absolute certainty, that the reason behind the tum'ah, resulting from leprosy and those bodily emissions which result in Tum'ah are death. The concept behind Tum'ah is death. There's something about dying that underlies, um, that is um, a central characteristic of every aspect of Tame, of Tum'ah. A dead body, he continues, represents the highest form of negative, and a leprous limb, a tsara'at limb, is also a representation of death. Similarly, spilt seed, because it contains the power of life, capable of producing a human being, represents a form of death. Its loss must be considered in contrast to the living and the breathing, although... Only the greatest and most noble minds can comprehend the loss of this great potential. Clearly, there's a great difference between um, spilt seed and death, if we encounter death in its full form, as he continues. 
Meanwhile, most of us are affected by the vicinity of dead bodies and graves, and we get depressed and anxious if we find ourselves in a house together with a corpse. Only coarse people would remain unmoved by such an experience. So, because there's such a wide range of things which can make you tame, it is sometimes hard to find the common denominator. Says the Kuzari, I'm going to tell you what the common denominator is. The common denominator of anything that drives you into a status of tame is death. What? Really? Death? That sounds exaggerated. I understand that a dead body is death. But how exactly is a nida death or um, a seminal emission death? So he says, yes, it's true. An average person... And by the way, this is an interesting thing. I was discussing it yesterday with a group. I gave a, I give a little share here during Mincha sometimes. And uh, after Mincha, between Mincha and Mariv, and we were discussing this idea. What is the difference between a dead body and a live body in real terms? I'm not talking about the fact, okay, now he's dead and then he was alive. What is the actual difference? Five minutes ago, this person was a breathing, li- living human being in this body. Now the body is exactly the same. Nothing has changed. There's no decomposition yet. We're not talking about 24 hours later. Ten minutes after somebody has died, what is the difference between that body and the body ten minutes ago? Nothing. There's absolutely nothing nothing different. And yet, people are freaked out when they come into proximity with a dead body. Very freaked out. Why is that? Why do we have this natural revulsion for death. So that, it would seem, is a natural, inborn, I'm going to call it, soul-driven reaction to death. We cherish life, we love life, and we celebrate life. We understand that life is the only force that can connect us with anything creative. And even though the body is the vehicle by which we perform anything in our lives, our neshama can do nothing. Our soul has no power to do anything in this world. We can't even identify our soul. It's not something which we can physically identify. The soul, you know, we always point towards our heart as if that's the seat of our soul. It's not. The heart is a beating uh, um, um, instrument that pumps blood around the body. It's not a soul. Your brain isn't your soul. Your body is just a bunch of atoms that have been very cleverly put together. But essentially, there's no difference between a live body and a dead body, other than the fact that now that body is no longer functioning. And yet we understand that there is an enormous difference. And coming into proximity with a dead body can freak out a human being. That's what the Kuzari is mentioning. Saying that anybody, even the, only the most coarse people, anybody that has deadened their senses to the extent that they're not affected by death, he, he considers a coarse person. Right? I'm going to look for the Hebrew word. Um, Av Hateva is what he calls him. Like a, a, somebody who's just removed from nature. Of course, 
A coarse person is not affected by death. We're all affected by death. Says the Kuzari, our sensitivity um, has a limitation. While we are affected by death, we're not affected by things which are associated with death if we don't understand that association. And because, um, you know, semen that contains seed is not something that we see as alive, therefore, we do not consider it's, when it's wasted as something that's associated with death. Its potential is not something we recognize and therefore we don't associate it with death. But actually, if it is emitted, which means it's been wasted and it cannot be used in the um, generation of life, it is associated with death. Similarly, a menstrual woman, if the potential was for her to become pregnant and to give life, to generate life, and now that's no longer possible, then it's something which is associated with death. It doesn't mean that this, you see that this definition presented by the Kuzari, and this is a medieval rabbi writing this, has got nothing to do with impurity and nothing to do with uncleanliness. There is something which is divine in life. In fact, we know it for a fact, right? We, we totally appreciate that the only aspect of physical creation which is worth celebrating is life. Without life, what is the use of anything else? It is only through life that there is potential. If something is dead or something has no life in it, it has no potential. It can't grow and it can't do anything and it can't achieve anything. So the, the, the essence of our relationship to God, the only possibility of a physical universe having any re relationship with God is through life. We human beings are the ultimate form of life. We're sentient, we are intelligent, and therefore we can have an appreciation of God, we can acknowledge God, we can recognize God, we can bring God into our lives. So our form of life, that highest form of life, is the source of God's presence in the physical universe. But any form of life is that, even if it's not sentient, particularly human life. But any death is a denial of the ability of God to be injected into the into the physical universe. And that is what somehow the Kuzari, and it, it's not a clear picture. This is not something which has been well defined in a long academic article. He's just put this here together in a few lines. And he also, he's, he admits that it's not a perfect idea and he hasn't really worked it through properly. And he's not saying this is definitely true, but in the way he understands it, it's this life and death differential that somehow seems to act as the platform for the concept of Tum'ah and Tahara. Let's look at the next, the next um, source, number two. It's still on page one in your source sheet. This is the Kotzka Rebbe. Um, I've, I've uh, taken it from an English translation um, as put together by, it's either Rabbi Yusach or Frand or whoever writes his pieces. It's a beautiful piece from the Kotzka Rebbe. And he says as follows, Contrary to common belief, Tum'ah 
is not the flip side of Kedusha. Do you remember what I said earlier? That there's three different um, statuses. There is Tum'ah, there is Tahara, and then there is Kedusha. And somehow we conflate uh, Tahara and Kedusha in our minds, but that's not what it means. Tahor is not Kadosh. As I said earlier, you, in order to be Kadosh, you must be Tahor. But does, that does not mean that Kadosh is Tahor. Look what he says. Instead, Kedusha is a spiritual force that is present when man is most similar to God, when he is a potential creator. So Kedusha is an elevated form of life. Tum'ah represents the vacuum that is created when that potential is removed. So when, we are, when, when there is no potential for life, that is the removal of a potential for Kedusha. That's what happens. So Kedusha has some role to play. That's why you cannot go into the Beit HaMikdash if you are Tameh, because you, you've actually done something which removes you from that force which can enable Kedusha. Therefore, you cannot go to a Kadosh location. Continues, when we are alive, the human being is potentially holy, potentially holy. Not holy, but potentially holy, because he is a powerhouse of creative potential. There, a human being can do so many things which can create Kedusha. However, when he dies, that potential ceases, it ends, it's over, and Tum'ah sets in. A human corpse, a dead body in fact, acquires the highest degree of Tum'ah precisely because the void is so great. That is why a corpse is avi avot ha-Tum'ah. The, the highest form of Tum'ah that we have in the world is a corpse, is a dead body. Why? Because that creative potential has ended forever. It's done. It's over. So that is the highest form of Tum'ah. A woman during pregnancy is most similar to God and, in a sense, is at the peak of her sanctity. She has become a creative form in the highest possible way because from her, a baby will be born. Once the child is born, however, the woman once again becomes a regular human being. So she now goes down a status. She was in an elevated status, but now she is down as a... Yes, the child has been created, but she is no longer pregnant. She is no longer a creator on par with God. The sudden absence of her creative potential creates a void that will be filled with Tum'ah. So the reason why someone who's just given birth becomes Tameh, it's not because they're dirty. There's no dirt involved. It's not unclean. It's because this great potential has now had a limited outcome and she is no longer a creative force until she once again becomes that creative force. I want to read you a long piece. begins on page two uh, from Shadal. Shadal, Shlomo David Luzzato, was born in 1800, died in 1865 from Italy. A great Torah scholar, very interesting man. Um, he was controversial 
and I, I can't tell you that everybody studies his Torah commentary. And generally speaking, his Torah commentary is a, a repetition or collation of other commentaries, which he's put together. He adds his own um, you know, additional comments and puts together um, interesting things. But essentially, if you wanted to find a perush on any Torah portion and you looked at Shadal, you would see that many of the things that he says are, are said elsewhere. But occasionally he branches out and comes up with a, an article, I would call it, on a particular subject which he thinks is important to expound upon, which he feels requires greater treatment, and this is one of those subjects. So the subject of Tum'an Tahara is something which he felt he wanted to focus on, and he puts together, it's a beautiful essay, it's this little monograph about this subject in which he, and he particularly delves into the subject matter which is covered in the Parshiot of Tazriya Amutsara, which is, as I said earlier, Tzara'at. Kan ra'iti lechavot dati biktsara. He says, I have decided that here is the correct place to um, give my opinion, to express myself, at least in short, in summary. I'll call in yane tumava tahara on every aspect of tum'a and tahara, of this concept of tame and tahor. Omer and to say, ki inyanea tum'ot nechlakim lishneminim. To tell you that the concept of Tum'ah is divided into two separate categories. Tum'ot she'yesh b'taharatan hava'at korban. There are those Tum'ot, that means somebody gets the status of Tameh, which in order to um, re-elevate himself to the status of Tahor, to emerge back into Tahor society, he needs to bring a sacrifice. And there are those Tum'ot which do not require bringing a sacrifice in order to once again become Tahor. And I think that in order to get an appreciation of this, says Shadal, I want to begin with the Tum'ah of Tzara'at, of this um, of this particular malady which is described in the two parshiot of Tazriya and Mitzora. Shehiha yoter chamura betumot hamin harishon. It is actually the strictest, the most strict of all the tumot which fall into the first category, which require bringing a korban in order to, uh, to exit from this status. Vehine. Behold, So he quotes this idea, which comes up in many of the commentaries, that the reason potentially why tzara'at was um, a, an affliction which required people to to uh, go into quarantine was because it was somehow infectious if people touched them or came into contact with them. If the Torah was concerned about infectious diseases, there are so many other infectious diseases which the Torah could have mentioned, not just Tzara'at. Why didn't the Torah mention any of, the, any of these others 
Yeah, we mentioned before, tuberculosis. It doesn't come up in the Torah. It doesn't say that if anyone is affected by tuberculosis, the Kohen is going to come and tell them that they have to move outside of the camp. It doesn't say that anywhere. Why would the Torah pick Tzara'at if it's to do with infectious diseases? In which case, that cannot be what it means. For example, um, what Shadal brings up is the plague, the bubonic plague. Why is the bubonic plague not mentioned anywhere in the Torah as something that's an infectious disease which requires those who are infected by it to go into quarantine? He says, therefore, Tarat cannot mean that. So don't delude yourself into believing that Tarat has anything whatsoever to do with a physical sickness and infectious disease. Venireli, he says, I believe, ki shinui mar'e ha'or hayalafi machshevet hakadmonim simon ga'arat ha'el. So he says, he comes up with an interesting theory. He says that the way that people identified being rebuked by God was the color of their skin. Because we were not prophets. Yes, there were prophets in society, but if you didn't live close to a prophet, you didn't live close to the Beit HaMikdash, and you were a faithful Jew, and you did something wrong, how would you know if you'd done something wrong, if that God was unhappy with you? The message came from God in the form of Tzara'at, what he calls Ga'arat Ha'el, rebuke as it were. God was scolding you through this physical, um, there was a physical sign of God's displeasure. And the person who was affected by Tzara'at was considered as somebody who had been, as it were, identified by God for having done something wrong. He's being punished for some sin that he had done and which, which wouldn't have required um, any kind of punishment uh, that would be decreed by the court, the Jewish courts. So, for example, if you've done something wrong and there's no witnesses to it, or you were not warned not to do it, there's no punishment for it, right? The, the way the, that Jewish law works is you need, there is a process, and if you don't fall within the boundaries of that process, you're not going to be punished. Tzara'at was a sort of extrajudicial punishment for something that you had done wrong, and that's the way it was perceived. That means ancient Jewish society perceived it in that way. They understood what it, they understood it for what it was. And people separated themselves from him because he was a sinner. As somebody who's being scolded, being rebuked by God. One second, God is not happy with you. I'm going to keep myself away from you until you've done Teshuvah. And similarly, if a clothing was infected by Tzara'at, or the home was infected by Tzara'at, people would interpret that as Ga'arat Ha'el. As if the, either the clothing or the home that were infected by Tzara'at are hated by God as a result of some great sin which was done in them. You were wearing these, this clothing when a great sin was done. 
So they're kind of in proximity to sin. They've been infected by sin. The home, you did something wrong in your home and your home was infected by sin. And these, this, uh, this idea of tzara'at affecting people in this way, and for this reason, was a way of generating, um, first of all, a belief in the concept of schar and onesh, either a benefit, reward if you do the right thing, or punishment or some type of effect that comes about as a result of doing something wrong. Um, and it's, it uh, allows for a greater and deeper relationship with God. Um, somehow through the Torah, this, this concept of emuna is going to be generated and strengthened. This is why the person who's, uh, who's infected goes into quarantine, the clothes need to be burnt, the house needs to be knocked down. There is this idea that sin is going to result in the destruction or somehow the, uh, it's going to affect the person or the object which has become involved with sin. And this is going to help people um, come closer to God. Um, and here's the important point. And they, they are commanded, there is this mitzvah, this requirement, that the person who's been cured was or has had this tzarat removed from them has to bring a sacrifice so that immediately after this this divine rebuke is over it's departed from them they're free from it he should come to the house of god and he should um, show deference to God, right? He should, he should uh, show humility in front of God as a result of having gone through this process, of having had this experience. And he should admit to God, right? He's done tshuva. And he admits, so he, he acknowledges to God that he's done something wrong and now I've done tshuva. I've gone through this. It's a kind of imposed Teshuvah process. Sometimes you need, you know, they always say that um, if somebody is going through terrible addiction issues, that they need to reach rock bottom in order for them to get over their addiction, to start the recovery program. But there is this idea that you have an intervention. What is an intervention? That rather than wait for the person to reach rock bottom, to literally be rolling around in the gutter or be thrown out of their home, or to lose their home, or to lose all their money, whatever it is, that family and friends will gather together and confront the individual and impose sanctions. Um, you know, uh, um, the idea is to say to the person, if you don't overcome your addiction, we won't speak to you, or we will um, have nothing, or we won't be in business with you, we won't involve ourselves with you, and that relationship is so important, or those relationships are so important to the person, to the addict, that they will 
um, feel as if they're at rock bottom and the recovery process can begin. It's an imposed rock bottom, externally imposed. We don't wait for it to happen. It is something that is done. It's, it's almost artificial, but it's not really artificial. It's real, but why wait for another half a year? Let's do it right now. Okay? Similarly, tsarat seems to be a tshuva process that is imposed by God so that the person realizes they've done something wrong. They're affected by tsarat. They're affected by it either on their bodies, their clothes, or their home. And therefore, they do Teshuvah, they go through a whole process of Teshuvah, that's what this is about, and they bring a Korban. Why? What's the word Korban mean? We've discussed this before. You draw close to God. It's not, a, it's not the sacrifice that counts, it's the closeness to God that counts. And that is the idea here. And the person will therefore request from God, He'll ask God, please don't reject me again. Don't be angry with me. I've done teshuva. I understand I did something wrong. I get it. I know why I had sara'at. I'm bringing the korban. Please don't be angry with me again. And that's why it says in the Pasuk, before God, that when you go through this process of rehabilitation, it's a rehab process. When you go through this recovery process, it's lifnei Hashem, before God. Because as a result of the Korban, God forgives him and he will, he will continue to be kind to him. The kindness from him will now uh, recommence and continue. V'omnam, in Yan Tziporim, now he goes into, he goes into further detail. Um, and the further detail is as follows. Why two birds? Why the Eitz Ha'erez, the, um, the piece of cedar, the Ha'ezov, and the grass that he has to bring as part of the process? I've not gone through the Pesukim, but you can look at it inside, chapter 12, in, in uh, Vayikra, in Ushniatolat, uh, and this little red worm, Vahazayot, and the sprinklings, all of these are there as signs and symbols of forgiveness, of atonement for his sin. To demonstrate that this Mitzorah, this person who was affected by Tzarat, is no longer hated by God or being rejected by God. So let's start with the red, little red worm. That is a symbol of sin. So we know from the Pasuk, he quotes it here. So your sins are compared to red. Red is the color of sin. That is the metaphor for sin in the Torah. Why? Because one of the most heinous crimes, heinous sins that you can commit is murder. Um, um, and there's no greater sin than that. And it's identified as red. Red is the metaphor for this grave sin. So the Erez, the the cedar tree, the mighty tall cedar tree, is something which is very large. The Ezov is a tiny, small, little grass. So that is a symbol, a metaphor for large and for small. 
Erez ve'ezov u'shni tolat ramzim le'avon gadov katan. Therefore, says Shadal, the concept of the shni tolat, this red worm, which is sin, the, uh, and the grass and the cedar, is to tell you large sin, small sin. It's all a metaphor, it's all symbolic, there to remind the person of what this is about. The blood of the bird that is sacrificed, there's two birds, one of them is sacrificed, that blood is, um, is a concept of cleansing. We know that the concept of of the bloodletting, as it were, in a sacrifice is somehow meant to convey the atonement for a grave sin. So there's a cleansing process that comes about as a result of this bloodletting. Meanwhile, water. So the water is about the cleansing of the smaller, less significant sin. It's interesting that Mayim, the connotation of water, is life. Everything, that's why it's referred to in the Torah as Mayim Chaim, live water. Water is a symbol of life, but it doesn't have quite the same power of cleansing as blood, as the blood of a sacrifice. It's somehow cleansing from a smaller, less significant sin. And the two birds represent the atonement for the person afflicted by Tzarat and the exchange. One of them, therefore, is sacrificed and it the blood becomes the atonement blood for the person who has gone through tzarat. Va'acheret, chaya, and the other one um, is, remains alive. Umechabrin ota im ha'avonot. And it, be, it is tied together. The, the, the aspects of the avon are tied together to the bird. Eight erez ve'ezovushni tolat. So these little, these three things, which are tiny, are tied together to the bird. It's dipped into the blood and into the water. All this incredible symbolism is for the uh, person affected by the Torah to absorb as he goes through this rehabilitation process. And then it's sprinkled onto the onto the person who is afflicted by Tzarat. And through this, it symbolizes that he has gone through the Tzarat, the process is over, and he has now been cleansed, and he becomes once again Tahor. And after that, The bird is released. One of them is sacrificed. The other one is released back into the wild. Obviously, the little things are taken, are, are untied from the bird, and the bird is allowed to fly away. To tell you that the person who had Sarat is no longer um, banished to uh, quarantine outside of uh, the, uh, the uh, neighborhood. He's no longer in quarantine. He can go wherever he wants. The bird, like the bird who can fly wherever it wants. And um, so too is the concept of nida and person who experiences emissions 
and a birthing mother. All of these has an, have an aspect of being rebuked by God. So any kind of emission that is involuntary, that is not um, that has not happened as a result of some action you've taken, but it's something that's, that just happens, that is, um, that is symbolic of the beginning of a death process. And it's somehow symbolic of these people having something to do with death. There is a death connotation here. He's taking this kuzari, and he's running with that ball. That's why we are expected to separate from them and to be careful not to touch them. Not because they're dirty, not because there's something wrong with them, but somehow they are symbolic of death, even in the remotest way. It's not like the tsarua. And by the way, not like somebody who's touched a dead person or a dead person himself or herself, right, a dead, a corpse. Somehow the, there, this symbolizes death, and therefore, in a lighter way, one has to separate oneself from, from them. And therefore, when they become pure, they must bring a korban. And they will be atoned for, via the Kohen, in the same way as the person who's afflicted by Tzara'at. Interestingly enough, he points out that the Nida, a woman who goes through a menstrual cycle, does not have to um, bring a Korban. Because the Torah, as it were, took pity or took into consideration that this is just going to be too crazy an expectation of every single Jewish woman. And has no expectation of them every single month to go to the Beit HaMikdash and bring a Korban once they've been through that um, experience. That's totally ridiculous. Conceptually, we understand it, and perhaps in a perfect world they would, but in reality, it's too much of an expectation. This, the symbolism is enough. The others who go through the involuntary mission um, do have to bring a korban, but not the nida. And therefore, she goes to the mikvah. So that's the stage below. As we said earlier, the mayim chayim, but without uh, any of the other additional aspects. Similarly, a person, a birthing mother, has to go through an atonement. Not because, as Rashi points out, because she, at some point she said, oh, I don't want to have any more children because this is so painful. That's not the reason, says Shadal. It's a nice idea, and it's one which is brought in Chazal, but that's not the real reason. But it's because she should request and somehow be aware of the fact that she shouldn't die and that death didn't occur and shouldn't occur through at the moment that one gives birth. And the blood that emerges during a birth is somehow symbolic of death. And every single um, mother who gives birth to a child is in danger of, they are much closer 
to death than an average person going through their day. Uh, even to this day, we treat a birthing mother, somebody who's going through um, uh, you know, um, giving birth, as if it is uh, uh, a pikuach nefesh situation. For example, all the rules of Shabbat are set aside in the event that somebody goes into labor. Why? Because we are, we are aware that even in the modern era, it's, you know, the chances of someone going to labor and giving birth and not making it through alive are high. We you know we've mitigated it with modern medicine. And, you know, mothers don't die in childbirth, but in, in previous times, it was a life and death situation. Continues Shadal, for Omnam. The tumot, the which don't involve bringing a korban as part of the um, process of becoming tahor, they are coming into proximity to a corpse or to a nevela, which is a dead animal, or um, the tum'ah, which, um, um, which involves an emission, but not one which is involuntary, one which is, which is generated. So it's some, for example, engaging in sexual union. That, is, that means, could mean you become tum'ah, but it's not the same as an involuntary emission. The eile ein bahem kapara. They don't require atonement. It's an interesting distinction. He said, because these are not um, uh, a Tamei status which resulted from a message from God. Right? This is not God sending you a message. This is something which you did yourself. It didn't come in Hashamayim. Achem inyanim tuluyim beratzon hadam. It's something which you did yourself. Ratzami tamei. Somebody who wants to will become tamei via these various methods. Loratzainomi tamei. But if you don't want to, you won't become tamei. If you don't want to come into proximity to a dead body, just don't come into proximity to a dead body. And then it won't happen. You won't become tamei. Don't engage in sexual relations if you don't want to have that tum'ah. And to the minority to whom it happens, it happens by accident, we don't take this into consideration. We don't, there's no law in the Torah about somebody who by accident happens to be in a place where somebody died. That's not what we're talking about. We don't take into consideration a minority when we make, make the rules. There's no way um, we can consider these particular types of Tamei as uh, people who, have, who are subject to God's rebuke. That's not what this is at all. I actually want to continue because I, I don't want to I don't want to go on too long with this piece.
so he towards the end and I'm, I'm going to leave it to to you to read it on your own I think that he's made a very interesting distinction um, towards the end he talks about the process of rehabilitation or uh, we're going to call it purification but um, becoming tahor through the mechatat through the paraduma I've, I've discussed this in other shiurim I have given um, when we talk about um, parashat para etc. But um, I think the main distinction he's come up with here is he is he has taken this idea of the kuzari of death and he's he has come up with two separate categories. Those which are imposed externally, so the type of tamay which comes about um, in an involuntary fashion, and tamay which comes about in a voluntary fashion, which requires um, cleansing and purification, but it is of a quite a different order than, let's say, tzarat. So even though somebody comes into proximity with a corpse, and a corpse is the ultimate form of death, that's not quite as bad as tzarat, because it's an elective it's an elective contact as opposed to an involuntary contact. And he makes this interesting distinction. But once again, we see this idea of the kuzari expressed here in Shadal, which is that the, the idea of, of Tameh is not one of um, cleanliness, uncleanliness. It's one which has to do with um, life and death. Life being the great potential um, of coming close to God and death being the end of that potential and how important it is to take into consideration these ideas when we are in the service of God. That is really the key here. Um, I want to, I just want to read this beautiful piece by Baruch Dubdavani. I put here a little biography of him. Baruch Dubdavani who died young at the age of uh, 60 um, something. Um, he was the head of the Aliyah department for many, many years, also worked in Misrada Chinuch. Um, interestingly enough, I only discovered this this week, that um, he came together with a Hasidim who went to Kfar Hasidim with the Yablon Rebbe. Um, his son, who I know quite well, is the head of uh, the WZO, Avraham Duvdavani, Duvduv they call him, uh, who is also an incredible worker on behalf of the Jewish people and uh, the state of Israel, um, but he was an educator. Baruch Dubdavani was an educator with a deep and profound knowledge um, of uh, particularly Hasidic texts, but generally a broad knowledge of Tanakh. And he has this most beautiful idea um, based on the fact that Tazria, the first, the first um, part of Tazria deals with Tahor and Tamei, or the Tum'ah of a birthing mother, of somebody who has given birth. And he, and he takes this idea and treats it as a, as a beautiful metaphor, particularly in terms of the creation of the state of Israel. And one of the great arguments by the ultra-Orthodox, by the Haredim, then and uh, you know, at the time of the creation and since then of the, of the state of Israel, was that the people who brought it about were not religious. And how can it be that if it's God's will that we live in the land of Israel, that the people who were the agents of God were not religious. It doesn't make any sense. It's one of the central um, themes, particularly of the Satma Rebbe, that it is impossible to consider the foundation of anything which comes about as a result of divine will 
to come about from such an impure, from such a tamay source. That is the idea. These are, you know, they are referred to very often in anti-Zionist tracts, in the, in the uh, pieces that are written by rabbis who are opposed to Zionism as avi avot hatum'ah, like a corpse. How can it be that the state of Israel comes about as a result of such, such a force? doesn't make any sense. Listen to what he says. I've translated this from the Hebrew. This is my translation. Every birth involves tum'ah. Not everything is perfectly smooth and simple, right? In, when a mother gives birth, it's not that you press a button and 15 minutes later the baby is born and it's all beautiful and tidy and nice. You know, it's uh, um, something that, you know, we can all just um, walk in like we walk into a store, we buy a product and we go and pay for it and we go home. That's not the way one has a baby. It's messy and difficult. And yet we are ultimately happy with a birth because we know that a new soul has come into being. Redemption is just the same, right? Mashiach coming, Gula, is just the same as a birth. It is also a new soul that has been born. The divine presence has returned to Zion, even though the process involves phenomena that are impure. But someone who understands what is going on will not miss the birth. The essential matter regardless of the impurity that accompanies it. Such a beautiful idea that the, the tum'ah that we, that we all recognize accompanies a birth is not something that means the birth didn't happen. It doesn't remove from the joy of the birth of a baby. We recognize it's a bit of a messy process. It's not perfect. And yet, as a result of that process, a beautiful baby is born. So too, the redemption process, the gu'ulal, the return of the Jews to Zion, the return of the Jews to the land of Israel, is not a beautiful process. It's not something which is pristine and hygienic and perfect, right? It is something which involves things which perhaps are not entirely in keeping with the way that we'd like it. It's not perfection. And yet, it's the result that counts. It's the gu'ula that counts. It's us being in the land of Israel that counts. That is really what is most important. And let me read this piece by Rabbi Akiva Kashtiel, the Rosh Hashiva at Eili. This idea can also be found in the Haftarah of Metzorah, which is next week's Parsha, and the Haftarah is as follows. And there were four people who were lepers at the gate. This is in Melachim Bet, chapter Zion. The Haftarah talks about the salvation of Israel from the Aramean siege. God's salvation was discovered and revealed only by the lepers who ostracized and banished and had to sit outside the city wall. They were the ones who alerted the city to the fact that the, that the redemption or the gu'ula, as it were, was about to happen. Sometimes we may feel uncomfortable that redemption is revealed by factors that are not entirely pure. Maybe we'd, we would prefer otherwise. Maybe it would look better that way. But God has loftier considerations than ours. In general, the reality and the way things need to happen are far more complex than we think. And perhaps there are processes that can only be revealed 
but by lepers outside the wall. Perhaps sometimes the people of Israel are inside the wall and we cannot get out of it, as prisoners cannot release themselves from inside the prison. We are in our little bubble and we cannot see beyond that bubble. Had it been left, unfortunately, sadly, had it been left to all the religious Jews of Europe to create the state of Israel, it may never have happened. As difficult as it is for us to admit that, and yet we all acknowledge how fantastic it is that we have the state of Israel, even though it came about as a result of irreligious pioneers. Our main task is to be clear when something is God's work, to appreciate the way things are going and to do what we can so that it can express itself and come to fruition. Whatever it is, we should never reduce the master of the universe, to fit in with our expectations. Rather, we should try to look correctly at what he is doing and growing. We'll leave it here for today on that lovely note.